Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi, welcome back to episode number 25 of the podcast and today I'm joined by Dr. Carrie Jones and ever since starting the podcast I've wanted Carrie on because she's the queen of hormones and I just had a list of questions that I wanted to ask her so I'm pretty sure a lot of you know who Dr. Carrie Jones is especially if you're on Instagram searching and following some hormonal balancing accounts. Carrie Jones is an internationally recognised speaker, consultant and educator on the topic of women's health and hormones. So you see her around a lot on Instagram, doing webinars, giving out free advice and doing practitioner training as well. She graduated from the National University of Natural Medicine, the School of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland, Oregon, where she completed her two-year residency in women's health, hormones and endocrinology. Later, she graduated from Grand Canyon University of Master of Public Health program with the goal of doing more international education, which I think she's doing an amazing job of. So she's lectured in the UK. I actually attended an event, the gestational journey in London, I think two years ago now, and heard her speak. So it was a really good opportunity and I learned a lot from Carrie's work. She was an adjunct faculty for many years teaching gynaecology and advanced endocrinology and fertility and she's been the medical director for two large integrative clinics in Portland. She's now the medical director for Precision Analytical who are the creators of the Dutch hormone test so I'm pretty sure I mentioned the Dutch test at least once every episode because it just provides a lot of information that you can't really get from blood work. We do go into this during the episode how a urine-based hormone test actually can be a little bit more beneficial from blood work, how it's more accurate, obviously easier to collect. So there's a lot of benefits that you can get from the Dutch test and Carrie is the best person to talk about this. And yeah, there's no kind of sponsorship in this episode. We just, I'm just discussing my personal experience with it and how it's helped me and my clients as well. So in this episode, I asked Carrie to give us a brief overview of all the different hormones tested in the Dutch test. These include estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, cortisol and cortisone. So I ask her how they're made, symptoms that they may be imbalanced and how to support them, whether you're lowering the levels, raising the levels. So she gives some really practical tips and advice on that as well, which I enjoyed. There's not a lot of talk about supplements. She's more focused on the food and lifestyle things, which I really like as well. So yeah, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. If you want more from Carrie, definitely follow her on Instagram and there's more information on the Dutch Test website as well. So let's get into the episode. Hi Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be exciting. I know, I'm so excited. You were on my number one list when I started this podcast. I wanted (laughs) Dr. Carrie Jones to talk all about (laughs) hormones with me. So yeah, I'm so excited to delve into many of the different hormones that may be found on the Dutch test and we'll dive in a little bit deeper into what the Dutch test is and how that compares to something like an average blood test as well. So yeah that sounds good that's what what I do. (laughs) Perfect so let's start off with estrogen. So estrogen gets really um, demonized these days with Mm -hmm. estrogen dominance and all of these different symptoms that are linked to high estrogen levels but why don't we start off by what estrogen is, where is it made, and why we need it so much? Why is it important yeah, for women? Absolutely. So it's um, when women are cycling, so when they're having their periods, um, estrogen is made in their ovaries. It's actually made uh, in your what's called a granulosa cell. So your follicles on your ovary, your follicles have the egg, and your theca cells in 
make testosterone, and then believe it or not, that converts into estrogen in the granulosa cells, and um, specifically E2, which is called estradiol. Now, women also make estrone, which is E1, and we um, convert that primarily from testosterone and DHEA, believe it or not, in places like fat tissue. And so then as we get older, as we head into you know, menopause, um, we primarily make our estrogen from DHEA and testosterone. We convert mostly into that E1, that estrone, because our, our ovaries are done. We don't have follicles anymore. And then the E1 can convert into E2. And that's how we, make, we sort of make a little bit of estrogen as we get older. But you're so right. Estrogen gets so demonized and it drives me nuts. In fact, this is my absolute new favorite book in the whole world. I happen to have it next to me because I'm writing a lecture of um, including it, but it's called, I don't know, it's, well, it says uh-huh. Estrogen Matters. <laughs> estrogen <laughs> Matters. And it's by Dr. Avram Blooming and, and uh, Carol Tavris. Um, and it's incredible because it just walks you through all the pros of estrogen, how it's so helpful for our skin and our bone development, our brain, preventing or um, um, pushing off dementia and Alzheimer's, cardiovascular health. I mean, it's just, it's really important for fertility. Women forget that. We actually need estrogen to rise up prior to um, ovulation. The rise of estrogen is what triggers ovulation. Um, and so I, I understand completely that estrogen, you know, can cause PMS and, you know, PMDD and it worsens fibroids, it worsens endometriosis, it worsens your mood, it worsens weight gain um, when it's sort of out of balance with progesterone and other hormones. But um, man, it does so much good in the female body. And when we don't have it, we sure notice it. We gain weight and we age faster and our memory goes and our bones get weaker. They don't get, they're not flexible like they used to be. And so um, it's really helpful to have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for those who can't see the visual, who's listening to the audio version, I'll link the book in the, the show notes. I definitely need to check that one out as well. Yeah. Um, practitioner, Dr. Felice Gurr, she has a similar um, standpoint with estrogen as well, which I really um, enjoy listening to. Her beliefs that even like PCOS is a condition of estrogen deficiency, which is completely different to what a lot of other practitioners say. So yeah, I'll link that in the show notes as well. But with estrogen, why is it that estrogen levels can be high in women? Is it that they're quite high or is it because of that um, ratio with progesterone do you see most commonly? You know, I see both. I'd say it's about 50-50. So some women, um, their granulosa cells, or um, they have an increase in production of E1. So they're, they're making a lot of that estrone, converting into estradiol. Um, they're getting it from outside sources and don't realize it. So think of like environmental chemicals that are very estrogen-like. Um, those kind of things will all increase our estrogen. So the actual amount circulating in our body is quite high. And then the other is you may have completely normal levels of estrogen, but you don't ovulate or you don't ovulate well, or you can't make a lot of progesterone. And therefore your progesterone is low relative to your estrogen in that second half of your cycle. So you get this perceived, what we call estrogen dominance, and it can give you a lot of the symptoms, PCOS, breast tenderness, breast enlargement, bloating, insomnia, you know, heavy periods, clots, those kind of things, because we're out of, we're out of balance with that, with that progesterone. So, and you can be both, you can be a woman who makes a lot of estrogen or has a lot of estrogen and on top of it, you don't make a lot of progesterone. So what are some ways that we can lower the estrogen apart from avoiding some of the things that you mentioned, um, the endocrine disrupting chemicals, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe losing excess body fat if necessary? What are some other tools that you use to both lower and increase estrogen if necessary? So to lower estrogen, specifically, I look a lot at um, one, so the fancy term where you convert DHEA into testosterone into estrogen is called aromatase. Um, but the other big thing I look at is your detoxification. If, you, if your liver and your intestines don't have the ability to get that excess estrogen out of, out, right, out of the body, then it's just going to recirculate. So estrogen goes through phase one, phase two, and what we call phase three detox. But when I work on treating it, when I'm, when I'm working with you know, patients or explaining to practitioners, I actually suggest treating it three, two, one. So start with the intestines, make sure you are going to the bathroom every day, maybe twice a day, you know, make sure you are eating a lot of fiber, having a lot of vegetables, make sure you don't have parasites, candida, 
you know, bacteria, these sorts of things. You're taking your probiotics, you're eating really healthy food. That's your phase three. That's what gets the estrogen out. And then your phase one and two happen in, um, well, all over, but primarily we focus in your liver. And so that's things like making sure you're getting enough water, making sure that you're, um, you know, cutting down or really reducing alcohol, making sure you're eating the foods like your broccoli, your kale, your cauliflower foods, make sure you're getting enough magnesium. Magnesium is really helpful for that phase two. Um, some people like to take baths, take Epsom salt baths, get that magnesium in. So definitely depending on how they look on testing, um, there's a lot of really great at home, simple things that women can do to help get their estrogen down. And I've heard you talk before about the bathtubinology. So when we're talking about the E1, E2 and E3, could you just go into a bit more detail about what pathway is the best and yeah. share with us the bathtub analogy? I find that really helpful. Did my bathtub analogy. Yeah. So that, that um, correlates with your phase one, your phase two and your um, uh, getting out of your system so you can go into phase three detoxification. So so you make estrogen, so you make that E1 or that E2, and then you go through phase one detoxification. That's what I consider like the water coming into your bathtub. How, what kind of water is it? How fast is your water coming in? Is your water coming in really slow? So what's your ability to, to form a phase one? Now, when you go through phase one, you have three pathways you can choose. There's a two pathway, a four pathway, and a 16 pathway. So that's what I mean by like, what type of water is it? Is it two water? Is it four water? Is it 16? Now historically, we consider the two pathway less carcinogenic. It's not necessarily healthy per se. It's just less risky when it comes to um, increasing our cancer formation or mutations in our DNA. Now, when the two pathway goes through phase two, it becomes something that actually is anti-cancer. So then it is, then it is a good pathway. We actually, that's why we want that pathway. We want that, that end result because it's anti-cancer. Um, and then the four pathway is considered more, more cancerous because it's more damaging to the DNA. It has a higher risk for damage to DNA. And we definitely don't want our DNA damaged. And then our 16 pathway is what we call the proliferative pathway. It makes things grow. So it can be good for bones, um, but it might be bad for other things like heavy periods, clots, fibroids, potentially um, breast swelling, breast tenderness, things like that. So when I'm talking about my bathtub analogy, the, my, the water coming in, are you a two person, a four person, or 16 person? Well, then you have to get it through phase two. You have to get rid of it, right? It, so that's the drain. And what's the ability of your drain? Is your drain open? Is your drain closed? Is your drain open but not open wide enough because you have so much water coming in? And so that's like the balance of your phase one, phase two. You want the the right balance of water coming in, and then you want your drain open so you can literally drain it out of your body and get rid of it, like a bathtub. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really find that visual is quite helpful, and yeah, yeah, trying to create different analogies to help people understand because it is pretty complex. Yeah. And if people are thinking, how do I find out what type of water, what type of bathtub I've got, then that's where the Dutch chess will come in, and we'll dive in a little bit deeper at the end of the episode as to where they can find that those types of things yeah um am i right in saying that cruciferous vegetables broccoli particularly broccoli sprouts are one of the best ways to move our harmful quote harmful metabolites down to the the healthy good pathways yes but yeah broccoli sprouts are really high in something called glucoraphanin and something else called morosinase and when they combine when they join forces, they turn into something else called sulforaphane. Sulforaphane is actually super, super healthy and really helps you um, if you're going down that four pathway, the four pathway being maybe more carcinogenic, then the broccoli sprouts, the sulforaphane helps turn it away from the ability to, to put, cause DNA damage back to the beginning so that you can then detoxify it out of your system. And so something is eating broccoli sprouts, putting them in your smoothies every day, you're putting them in your salads, just eating them, you know, putting them in your soup um, can be really, really helpful at reducing your estrogen risk, which is really nice. It's yeah. just a food. Yeah, you just eat exactly. it. Food is medicine at its finest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Throw them in everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they taste okay. They taste yeah. a bit spicy in some cases, so um, don't worry about the taste or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. With the estrogen dominance, obviously you mentioned progesterone is really important to offset mm -hmm. some of the negative effects of estrogen. 
So let's talk a bit more about progesterone. How yes. do you make progesterone? What are the benefits and what are some signs that it's too low? Are they the same signs as the estrogen dominance? Yeah. So those two cells that I mentioned earlier, your theca cells and your granulosa cells, so those make testosterone and estrogen. And then when you release the egg, when you ovulate them, your theca and your granulosa cells magically convert into your corpus luteum or your lutein cells. And then you make progesterone. Women don't realize they don't make progesterone until they release that egg, until they ovulate. And it's called progesterone because it's your progestation hormone. It's the one that's to help you the most really with getting pregnant. It, it helps um, with implantation um, and it helps maintain uh, pregnancy for about the first 10 to 12 weeks of pregnancy until the placenta is strong enough to take over. So really in that entire first trimester, it's your, um, it's your corpus luteum or corpus luteum's progesterone that does it until, until the uh, placenta takes over. But progesterone also helps a lot with like reducing anxiety and making you feel calm and relaxed, helping with you with your sleep if you have insomnia. So it's a really good just kind of like nice breath of fresh air type of hormone. That's what it does. So if we don't have enough of it, is women if we don't ovulate or if we don't um, if we ovulate but our cells are, are are not strong enough to make a lot of progesterone, then we tend to feel more anxious, especially as we get close to our period. We tend to like lose sleep. We tend to have heavier periods. Uh, we tend to have troubles getting pregnant um, or maintaining implantation. Maybe we have early miscarriage uh, because we don't have the progesterone strength to, to hold on to that baby. And so it's very similar to estrogen with a little bit more um, sort of implantation fertility as well uh, as it comes to symptoms. Yeah, my, uh, progesterone's my favorite hormone for that reason. <laughs> There's so many benefits and we only get it short um we only get it two weeks of the month so when we get it we really want to make sure that we do else we're gonna have worse periods and our mood's gonna be affected what are some kind of obstacles to ovulation so what are some of the things that can either prevent ovulation or delay it so people who have late ovulation what are some factors that may be playing into that Absolutely. Now, a big one, which I think is pretty obvious to me and to you, but it confuses a lot of women. If you're on any kind of hormonal birth control, then you will, like the birth control pill, the patch, the ring, uh, the injection, you're not going to ovulate. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, I should see if I'm ovulating, but I'm on the birth control pill, you're not. The birth control pill, um, if it's working, it should shut down the communication from your brain to your ovary. That's how it pre um, prevents pregnancy. Um, the, the coil, so the hormonal coil, such as the uh, marina or the skyla, um, it's about 50-50. So some women get full or partial suppression of ovulation and some women don't. It's just the effect of that particular coil. If you have the copper, um, the, also called the paragard, that one should not interfere with ovulation. That's not one of its known uh, side effects. So that's, that's a really big one. But other, otherwise, if, if you're listening and you're like, I don't use any birth control, what's going on? Lots of things can get in the way in ovulation. If you think about it, ovulation is what um, is, is to, to try to get you pregnant, um, whether you want to or not, like that's totally fine if you don't want to, but your body every month is thinking uh, for biological purposes, you're going to get pregnant. So anything that interferes, any kind of like high stress, um, extreme exercising, under uh, body weight, traveling time zones, um, thyroid problems, hypothyroid and hyperthyroid, breastfeeding or having sort of high prolactin, um, any like any like major nutrient deficiencies, um, head trauma, traumatic brain injury, um, or maybe you've been in a car accident and you've hit your head and so now it's affecting your communication down to your other glands. So lots of these things can interfere with ovulation and we don't even realize it. Um, Over-the-counter pain medications, um, some women are taking them daily for headaches, for back aches for, you know, stomach, whatever, um, that can interfere with ovulation, um, steroid medications. And think of like, if you're doing that inhaler every day, if you're on, um, maybe a steroid medication because you have some sort of inflammation or, you know, swelling or, um, autoimmune condition that you, your doctors put you on steroids. 
Um, opioid, opioid pain medications will suppress ovulation. So you can see the list is huge and I've, and it's, I've just like scratched the surface. <laughs> PCOS, I mean, there's so many reasons. And yeah. so when women are listening, then they're like, well, what one supplement can I take? I'm like, well, if you have a thyroid problem that I will address you differently than I would address maybe somebody who has a traumatic brain injury or somebody who's on a steroid inhaler or, you know, taking opioids because they just got out of surgery. And so, and so the, how I address it is definitely um, different, but ovulation is very, very uh, touchy for a lot of women. Like me, for example, if I cross too many time zones, then my ovulation gets all screwed up. <laughs> my body's like, I don't know where you are. Yeah. Let's not get pregnant. We're not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Circadian rhythm is often overlooked. I always try and emphasize the importance of natural light and dark cycles. Yeah. So important. Your body and your hormones really rely on that. And we're designed as humans to be in touch with that a bit more than we are. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. And I was doing some research into melatonin um, and just the whole, um, you know, the circadian rhythm. Oh, there's so much amazing research on circadian rhythm. And had, and one of this paper I was reading a while ago said that melatonin obviously is a big influence on rhythm. It's, it's your hormone that comes out at night at dark, um, but it also helps influence your other rhythms. So think of like your reproductive rhythm. Think of your feeding rhythm when you're hungry and when you're not. So when women are saying to me, I'm not ovulating. I'm not ovulating very well. I don't know if I ovulate. I like sleep is the first thing I talk about because it's, it's the easiest thing. Most women, I'm like, are you on your phone at night? They're like, yeah, I am. You know, are you on your tablet? Are you watching TV till too, till too late? Are you, are you up late? Are you having alcohol late? Are you having sweet like desserts late? And when they're like, yeah, and it's, you know, I can tell it's affecting my sleep, but it's hard to give up. I'm like, but it's also trickling down and affecting your cycle and and now you have all sorts of hormonal symptoms hmm. yeah turn off your devices at 8 mm -hmm. or 9 p.m put on your blue blocking glasses yeah your night shift on your phone there's so many things to just easy simple tweaks that can have massive impact on your hormonal health mm -hmm. so with progesterone two questions do you ever see high progesterone um mm -hmm. and what could cause that yeah absolutely um i'm assuming she's not uh, supplementing with progesterone. She doesn't have a prescription for progesterone. There are some women that just make really robust levels of progesterone. When they ovulate, they have very strong lutein cells and they make a lot. Um, and, and definitely, I will sometimes see this if women are on certain herbs to help with ovulation. There's a popular herb called chase tree berry vitex, vitex agnus castus. And um, sometimes women... Um, it, it's it it's over it's too stimulatory for them <laughs> they go from making very little progesterone to making a whole heap amount of progesterone um which and you may think well that's not so bad right it depends on the woman because progesterone too much progesterone can actually cause acne um it can cause wa uh, um breast swelling water retention and headaches it can make headaches worse especially if you're a headache prone person and so I have had some women who've gone on herbs or they're on herbs and they're like, oh my gosh, my headaches are back or my face is breaking out. I'm like, okay, got to stop that because it's actually, you're, now you're making too much progesterone. It's a great hormone. It's one of our favorites, right? But it's, it's um, even too much can be mm -hmm. symptomatic. Yeah. Too much of a good thing. I think we yes. get, we're like that <laughs> with everything, aren't we? If something's claim to be good we have it 24 7 and we yeah. can't get enough of it why not it's <laughs> moderation people yes no, nobody gets that yeah. and is there anything else that you like to recommend to boost progesterone levels so now that sleep yeah and vitex B6 anything else is another good one vitamin b6 is a really really helpful one mm -hmm. so vitamin b6 you have to be careful of you don't want to overdose again too much of a good thing it can cause neurologic problems um tingling especially fingers and toes and things like that but the active form is called P5P, um, and you can be, you can take, um, you can use. I tend to use P5P because I, you get much less risk for having those neurologic type symptoms. For example, I have a um, genetic SNP where um, I have a problem using my vitamin B6, and so I actually take, I think I take somewhere between 50 and, or excuse me, 25 and 50 milligrams of P5P. Um, almost every day, every other day, every second day. Um, and, uh, it, I feel amazing so much, so much better, I should say, but I know I have that snip and I know mm -hmm. I can get away with those, 
with that dose. Um, but if you're taking just plain vitamin B6, definitely be careful. Um, mo most practitioners will stay to try to keep it under 100 milligrams. Um, and then the P5P, most supplements you'll see in a range of like 10 to 10 to 50 milligrams, uh, sometimes higher, uh, depending. But yeah, B6 is a good one. And a lot of a lot of people are actually deficient um, or sort of suboptimal, maybe not outright deficient, but suboptimal in their B6 because just our food quality is so poor. We just don't we just don't get it like we used to. I think I'm the same with B6. I just need it all the time. Um, mm -hmm. I actually think I've got cryptoparaloria. Um, oh, so, yeah. yeah. So zinc and B6, I feel like I just need them constantly. Um, yeah. yeah. I can't be without my B6. <laughs> Yeah, I that, same. Yeah. I went through a very long period where I like I just it was weird. I, I just knew instinctively I had to take these. I took P5P and um, I just craved it all the time. I don't, you know, people are like a supplement. I'm like, I know it's weird. I just was always attracted to the supplement. Mm. And now I think I've gotten myself to sufficient levels because I only feel like I need it or I only reach for that supplement a couple times a week. And um, and sometimes like last week, I think I only took it once. Um, and you know, so I, it's, you can become deficient in it. I think I was pretty deficient for a while. It's interesting, isn't it? How your body mm -hmm. will start to tell you what you need. And that's mm -hmm. yeah, a really good point to be at where you're intuitively reaching for something or even when you, you know, your diet's really good one day, you're getting B6 rich foods, then maybe you can skip the supplement, but on days maybe you're traveling or you're extra stressed that day, then it's good to have on hand as well. So it's good when you reach that point. Right. What your body needs and listening to that as well. Okay, so on to androgens. I know there's many different androgens in that group. So the male hormones. Um, what were they made and what are their benefits for women? Yeah, there are huge benefits. There's so many benefits. Now, um, so we have a few androgens, but the two main ones we can talk about are testosterone and DHEA. So DHEA there's, so there's DHEA and then there's DHEA-S. And so DHEA-S is what we call the S is for sulf, uh, sulfate. It's the sulfated form. And it's the um, inactive form. So the body makes DHEA, puts an S on it, and then it's inactive. So it's like storage form. It's waiting. And then it takes the S off and now it can go do things. It can go bind to receptors and make things happen. So your DHEA is primarily made um, in your adrenal glands, but you do make some of it in your uh, ovaries as well. Um, and you do make some of it um, in, um, you know, obviously in peripherally when the body takes the S off and in whatever cell it needs to, and then now you have DHEA, but predominantly it's made in the adrenal glands. Now, testosterone, testosterone's a mix. Testosterone's made partially in the ovaries, partially in the adrenal glands, and partially um, in your fat tissue. It gets converted from a hormone called androstenedione that comes from DHEA into testosterone. And so with women, we do make testosterone a little bit kind of all over. So the ovaries, the adrenals, and, and, and out and out in our tissues as well. And women, we don't make as much testosterone as men do, right? We make more estrogen and progesterone. That's our, those are our hormones, whereas men make a whole lot more testosterone. But we need testosterone because it's very important for bone health, brain health, energy, lean muscle mass, sex drive. And so when we lose testosterone as it drops, especially if our if our adrenals are not getting the message to make it, or if our ovaries are not getting the message to make it, or maybe we're headed towards that perimenopause menopause, so the ovaries aren't working like they used to, then we already don't have a lot of testosterone, and then it drops lower. And this is when women are like, I'm having trouble putting on lean muscle mass. My sex drive is going down. Um, I don't, I'm not as motivated as I used to be. I don't have as much energy as I used to be. Testosterone helps with all of that. And again, it's good for all of those reasons, but when it gets too high, then we run into problems <laughs> as well. So what are the signs and yeah. symptoms of excess androgens in women? Absolutely. So it's common, believe it or not, this, those cells in our ovaries called theca cells that make testosterone, they're very stimulated by insulin. So for people who have blood sugar and insulin issues, they can have higher testosterone because of that stimulation. Now, when we have too much testosterone as a woman, we tend to feel angry and irritated. Um, we tend to get acne, especially along the, you know, the jawline and the chin. 
we tend to get that dark, coarse hair in places we don't want. So um, in the sideburn area, on our chin, on our neck, around our nipple, on our bellies. Um, and this is different than maybe, um, you know, like if you are of a heritage that has dark, coarse hair, that's one thing. But if you notice as your testosterone has increased and you're starting to get sideburns and, and, and you shouldn't, um, if you've noticed like the, the hair around your nipple is getting more and darker and coarser, um, then definitely look into testosterone and DHEA. When they go down their pathways, when they go where they need to go, um, there's a pathway called an alpha pathway, the five alpha pathway. And the alpha pathway makes it more um, uh, symptomatic. It's, it's the more robust of the pathways. It's the one that gives us the acne, the anger, the irritation, what have you. But it's the same in men. In men, they start to get male pattern baldness. They start to get prostate issues down that pathway. So we can't avoid that pathway completely, but for women, um, a, a lot of women wanna, um, we don't wanna go down it too much because we don't wanna be angry and irritated with spots on our face. <laughs> we want to be, the, yeah, most of us don't time. want that. <laughs> and with the um, the high androgen levels, you mentioned insulin being a big driver. What are some yes. other factors that may be playing into PCOS or just um, that high alpha state? Yeah, absolutely. So stress is another big one. So anything that upregulates your brain to adrenal pathway can up increase testosterone and DHEA production. Um, inflammation for some people can really do it. So if you have an infection, um, if you're eating foods that you shouldn't be eating, so you're chronically inflamed, if you've got mold in your house and you're mold reactive, if you have Lyme disease that's, that's active, you know, all these various things, candida, um, I have definitely seen that will push that alpha pathway and usually people who don't feel good or who are sick or inflamed, they're usually angry and irritated. <laughs> and they, you know, they often don't have very good skin and, and maybe they're having hair loss. They're, even as a woman, they're having what we call male pattern baldness, where they're starting to lose it at their forehead and at their temples, as opposed to kind of all over. When they pull their hair back in a ponytail, they can see that they're getting more of a receding hairline or they're getting sort of that hair loss at the temples. Um, and so by addressing those causes, you can help reduce your symptoms. Thankfully, there are also there are medications that are on the market that are used to um, prevent that as well. Um, but there are some supplements that are helpful as well. You mentioned zinc earlier. Zinc, zinc is a big one. Um, the EGCG in green tea, so it's one of the active parts of green tea. Reishi mushroom, for those people who are into mushrooms, reishi is a really big one. Um, there's a, a herb called saw palmetto, um, it's, co it's commonly used in like men's prostate formulas, but women can use it as well. Um, stinging nettle root is another really good herb. Um, well, the root of a herb. Um, again, common in prostate formulas. Women tend to freak out. They're like, I don't want to take this formula. It says prostate. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I have to always explain that. <laughs> yeah, that's, I just need the stuff inside. <laughs> So there are, the good thing is when women say, what can I do? I'm like, well, the great thing is we can do a lot from inflammation. We can do a lot on blood sugar insulin. We can do a lot on diet. And in the meantime, to help prevent spots and hair loss and all this stuff, we can do supplements to sort of help it move faster. Hmm. Are you a fan of a low-carb diet and do you use intermittent fasting? Um, I tend to actually, I do um, more the intermittent fasting. And so I, speaking of Dr. Felice Gersh, I read the studies that she showed about women with PCOS. If they ate breakfast, but stopped dinner sooner, that they did better for blood sugar and insulin and recovery. And mm -hmm. so I have been encouraging that more. I, I don't have PCOS, but I have I used to not eat breakfast until a lot later, till maybe 10 or 11. And now I've been eating breakfast as soon as I wake up. And then I've been trying to cut dinner back because unfortunately I travel, I try. When I travel, it's really hard. But when that I find that I do better, feel better. My um, heart rate variability is better when I uh, have my dinner much sooner and much smaller. Um, and so it, th that's usually what I what I tell women. Um, mm -hmm. but I also use things like berberine, the, the spice, um, or per berberine. And I use, um, inositol. Those are two really big ones that I use to help improve that insulin resistant state while working with them on, um, diet, sleep, exercise, alcohol, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. The common approach to intermittent fasting is like you said, skipping breakfast, 
maybe having a bulletproof coffee, getting in a fasted workout. And right. I, I noticed myself, I tried that and for clients as well, it just didn't work for some reason. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree with the earlier um, dinner time and then getting that good fasting overnight is a much better approach in my opinion. Yeah. And women tend to tell me they sleep better. And if they're tracking, if they're wearing the watch or the, the aura ring or something, they say their deep sleep is going up. Their heart rate variability is improving um, when they notice that, when they're eating earlier or eat light dinners. Um, and it's, which is great. I'm like, then let's keep it up. Hmm. Would you only incorporate fasting for someone who's got really strong adrenals and who isn't got like HPA axis dysfunction? Or do you feel yeah. like that can help? to improve that maybe? Um, if they wanted to try it, I wouldn't have them do it every day. I know some people are really into that time-restricted feeding. They do it every day. You know, I'd maybe say try it once a week and see how it goes. Having done um, the fasting mimicking diet on myself and testing my HPA axis uh, for eight straight days, I can tell you if you don't have a strong adrenals, it's, it's going to be really tough. You're going to feel really pretty awful. And it might even make you worse in the end. So for mine, my HPA axis is actually quite good. Um, so my before is normal. And then every day I did the fasting mimicking diet for five days. Um, my cortisol goes haywire as it should. I'm on a fasting mimicking diet. Um, it's adjusting to help me adjust. Once I stop the, the diet, which after five days you stop, um, in within two days I go right back to normal. So I've been normal response to hormetic stress, which is great. But if you already come into it with cortisol all over, then you're probably not going to get better. You're probably only going to feel worse because for some people making that change to time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting, fasting mimicking diet is too much of a stress. Their body is not ready for that yet. Mm -hmm. So wait, I don't have them do that. Yeah. And I love seeing your results as well on Instagram. You're showing your data. <laughs> oh, I was a super geek, just really yeah. <laughs> looking into how it was affecting you. But yeah, again, you're probably different from the average person in the fact that you're um, caring for your hormones. You know about all the supplements and sleep and everything. So for the average person, it may be a bit of a, a rougher transition during that. But I think some of the benefits of intermittent fasting could benefit a lot of people as well there's absolutely yeah so much research on that so before we move on to some of the other stress hormones um we didn't touch on elevating testosterone and androgens so for the women who are maybe going through perimenopause and the androgens are lowering would Mm -hmm. you recommend um boosting them or do you just feel like that's a natural thing that should happen and you kind of have to manage with the symptoms. (laughs) And I understand the arguments. I know a lot of practitioners feel that menopause is natural and that we, you know, as women that we should just embrace it and, you know, not try to, um, do anything about it. And I've even had female practitioners say to me, like, you know, women need to suck it up. Menopause is natural. And I'm like, "Uh, it's like natural. I mean, it's natural, but humans, our, our life expectancy has also gone up exponentially in a very short amount of time. Um, and so, I'm, while I'm not thrilled with the person who designed menopause, some of the in perimenopause, the symptoms uh, for women, suck. let's just be real, they suck. Um, I also don't believe women should suffer, not so much, like, like for the hot flashes, night sweats, I can understand when practitioners say, you know, just suck it up. But what bothers me is when things like dementia, memory decline kicks in, bone flexibility decreases, um, cardiovascular, you know, um, endothelial, which is, so your arteries, the inner lining, your arteries get stiff and rigid. That's what bothers me is when you're specifically telling women menopause is normal. It's okay to have significant memory decline, increase your risk for dementia, increase your risk for hip fracture and increase your risk for cardiovascular disease. I'm like, no, that's actually not right. That's not okay. And I don't think that's like a healthy aging in any stance, there's there's anti-aging and then there's healthy aging. I want women to be able to age however way they want gracefully and have their memory intact and be able to walk and not worried about a hip fracture and not be on all sorts of cardiovascular medications because their endothelial lining is really stiff and rigid. And so um, I do think I am a big supporter of women, you know, working with their hormones, however that means, um, to get that back to get to get that health um 
Now, when it comes to androgens, though, as women get into menopause, it's tough to get it up because you've lost your ovarian production. So there's 25% right there that's gone because you've entered into menopause. And now you have to rely on what we call peripheral conversion. So out in your body, the conversion and the, the production from your brain to your adrenals. And so working really hard on those two things um, can be helpful. There are some you know, supplements like zinc. There are some herbs um, such as maca, which is a Peruvian herb. Um, there's an, an Indian Ayurvedic herb called shatavari, which is also known as asparagus, racemosis. Um, there's another one called um, tribulus. And so they've been shown to be helpful at reducing symptoms. Sometimes they can encourage those glands, like the adrenal glands, to, uh, to, to produce. Um, but in some cases, for some women, if they're just that low and really suffering, they may need to do some kind of um, hormone replacement therapy um, because I don't want them to have memory decline. I don't want them to have high risk for hip fracture because somebody told them, oh, menopause is natural you know, get over yourself. I'm like, yeah, say that with a broken hip at uh -huh. 65 years old and, you know, going into early dementia. Yeah. That's not fair. So, exactly. so, yeah. you know, the prevention is probably the best way to go about it. So for people yes. who are maybe in the early thirties, mid thirties, mm -hmm. focusing on adrenal health is going to be a really big, important factor because your adrenals are like the backup hormone producing yes. glands aren't they um yeah winter menopause as well so yeah that, yep. yep. that dhda production is what makes your testosterone what makes your estrogen when you go into menopause and then just for the the you know i tell women all the time no it's your you know young ages like exercise do weight bearing exercise you know get your bones as strong as possible because once you hit your 30s it definitely starts to go downhill and um you don't want to increase your risk for bone fracture later in life. You, you want that good, you know, bone rigidity and bone flexibility or your um, bone um, density is what I meant and bone flexibility um, as you get older, which you know, a lot of women in their twenties aren't thinking about, you know, they're, they've different, they've completely different things on their mind versus <laughs> what their bones are going to be like in their seventies, <laughs> but eighties. Um, but I'm like, if you start now, you'll reap the benefits later. So start now, do you, get your sleep now and, and eat healthy now and take care of yourself now. And it will only make it easier as you transition through the decades. I promise. Yeah. Great advice. And uh, yeah, I feel like I've still got all that to come. Very <laughs> menopause and yeah, I'm just trying to now do the best that I can in my twenties and try and hopefully have an easy transition. That's the goal. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so on the hormonal aspect as well, there's a lot of, information online about the pregnenolone steel so mm -hmm. i know that you mentioned that stress is really um really impacts progesterone production is that due to um progesterone being stolen to create cortisol what's actually nope. going on there nope um so stress can absolutely impact progesterone production but it happens at the brain so um uh, stress uh norepinephrine epinephrine so noradrenaline adrenaline and cortisol um, will impact from the hypothalamus and pituitary in the brain down. And that's why, because think about it, if you, the, the point, whether you want to or not, the point of the female body is reproduction. And if you're highly stressed out, then you're not generally, not always, but generally, you know, sort of in a stable place to get pregnant and have a baby. And so a lot of women will have this reduced or like gone, no um, ovulation, or they'll have a reduced productive progesterone production. And so as a result, um, stress impacts that way. So the pregnenolone, the pregnenolone steel started because they, when you look at a steroid pathway on a piece of paper, it's, and they have all the hormones and all the arrows and everything from start from cholesterol all the way down. The, the pathway is just, it's just on a piece of paper, right? It's 2D. But when you look at it really in life, um, it's not how, it, it's not how it works. So Cholesterol is the backbone to all of your steroid hormones. So if you want to make progesterone, you can't you can't start with pregnenolone. You have to start with cholesterol always. It's the backbone. It's the first step. Always, no matter what, I don't care. So the pregnenolone steel, because on paper it looks like the pregnenolone can go this way and can go this way and can go this way. And but if you look at an actual in a gland, 
For example, the adrenal gland, the cell that makes cortisol, does not reach out to the ovarian lutein cells and steal its pregnenolone out of its mitochondria, which is where it happens, the um, creation of hormones happen. So there's no stealing between glands, just like the ovarian um, uh, you know, gland you know, that's making you know, estrogen can't steal from another gland that's you know, trying to make something else. So, and as far as we know, there's not one big mitochondrial pool of pregnenolone that's already gone from cholesterol to pregnenolone and is waiting to be converted. It's, it's in, it happens in the cell, in the mitochondria. So the pregnenolone still doesn't exist, which is like really mind blowing to a lot of people because they're looking at the steroid pathway on a piece of paper. And I'm like, you have to remember that paper represents multiple glands, male and female on one sheet of paper. But if you remove the gland, each individual gland, then they, and it, and if you understand that it happens intracellularly in the mitochondria, then you'll quickly realize, like, oh right, of course, like the the ovaries are not stealing from the adrenals; yeah. they can't. Yeah, very good point. I think more people need to be aware of that. Yeah. And yeah, stress can definitely impact progesterone, but like you say, it's at the brain level. Yeah. Um, so don't kind of be really stressed now and think you're fine, it will still impact you just in right. another way. <laughs> and then, you know, I will get asked too, because I know in some countries you can actually take pregnenolone. So people will say, well, I take pregnenolone and I feel better. Like, of course you do, because pregnenolone actually, pregnenolone converts into something called allo, A-L-L-O, and allo can, can cross into the blood-brain barrier. So pregnenolone totally works, but it converts into allo and again, goes from the brain down. And so um, it's different than like weaseling its way into an ovarian lutein cell to make progesterone. It, it, like, it has to start with cholesterol. And pregnenolone, as far as we know, does not turn into cholesterol and then turn back into pregnenolone and then go down the chain. It's, it, you know, it starts mm. with cholesterol. So. Yeah. And that's the reason why we need lots of healthy fats in the diet, ladies, yes, for the cholesterol. <laughs> So don't be afraid of healthy fats. Just yes. putting that out there. It is so <laughs> um, true. Yeah. With the um, the next two hormones that I want to focus on, the last two are cortisol and cortisone. Mm -hmm. So can you explain what they are, where they're produced, and again, why they're so important? Yeah, absolutely. So cortisol is produced primarily from the adrenal glands, although there is new research to show that other um, cells of the body have their own mini uh, HPA access that can make cortisol, but primarily from the adrenal glands. And cortisol is made first, and it's active. It's what goes around, does the things, help with energy, helps with stress, helps with blood sugar, helps with inflammation, helps with all these great stuff. The inactive form is called cortisone. So the body constantly goes back and forth between active cortisol and inactive cortisone, depending where you are in the system. For example, like in the um, in your sweat glands, in your sweat, like your armpits, your sweat glands, your body has a lot of something called mineral corticoid receptors. Cortisol combined there, but the body doesn't like that. So in sweat glands, the body will, when cortisol comes in, the body will inactivate it quickly to protect itself to cortisone. And then when it leaves, it can reactivate to cortisol and go do its thing. And which is cool, it's a, it's a protective mechanism um, so that you don't have, hopefully, excessive amounts of cortisol floating around, damaging receptors and, and tissue all the time. The body does have a system to try to help that. Now we can mess up our system. We mess up our system all the time. Uh, lots, plenty of people listening to this will say, well, I have really high levels of cortisol. Like, yeah, I know it's not a perfect system. Um, but in sometimes when you test, like when you, when you Dutch test, I will see people have really high levels of cortisol but also really high levels of cortisone as well, meaning the body is really trying to inactivate all that cortisol. It's just way too much. So it's really important on testing. We look at both. So I can tell you, are you in, are you, are you, is your cortisol being deactivated too much um, or it kind of at the right amount? Which um, is neat. With, with the term, another myth that I want you to kind of bust is the term adrenal fatigue. What's actually um, going on there? <laughs> Adrenal fatigue. Now, um, that's you know, there, there's really like Addison's disease. Addison's disease is the true autoimmune, where the adrenal glands literally cannot produce cortisol. The um, autoimmune um, condition is affected the cells that produce it, and so that's different than the the traditional like take the quiz online, read the book. I'm so tired. I have adrenal fatigue. 
So um, believe it or not, as I've been, I'm hoping people will realize as I talk, as, as you and I are talking, like it all starts with the brain, right? It's the brain's decision to tell the adrenals what to do. The, as far as we know, the adrenals are not necessarily self-directing. Um, they don't have their own brain and make their own cortisol. They're primarily influenced through the hypothalamus and the brain and the pituitary. And so the idea that the adrenals much like the ovaries, just give out, run out of cells over time and turn into menopausal glands is not true. Um, they, they don't. I mean, unless you have Addison's, but m a lot of people don't. And so really we need to start looking higher. Why is the brain not telling the adrenals to make cortisol and that's why you're so tired? Or why is the brain making good amounts and the adrenals aren't listening? What's happening in the communication in between the top to the bottom? Uh, the brain to the gland. Um, and so when it comes to adrenal fatigue, I understand what people mean, but it's actually much bigger and more systemic than we think because there's so many influences on this and on the brain um, affecting the adrenal glands. Yeah. And it really is so important. The, and the symptoms are real. I also want yeah. people to realize I'm not saying what you have is quote is fake. You know, or I'm, I, I completely believe you when you tell me you feel burned out and you're super tired and you know, you have all these symptoms 100%, but everyone focuses on the little adrenal glands on top of your kidneys. And really I want people to look bigger um, and, and wider. I want you to look at the immune system, the thyroid, the brain, in particular, you know, all of these, even the ovaries, you just chemicals, just everything, all these, your intestines, you know, the, the vagus nerve, like all of these things have a huge impact on whether your adrenals make cortisol or not. Yeah. And I think it's important to test and not guess when it comes to cortisol as well, because mm -hmm. sometimes low cortisol can um, display in high cortisol symptoms like anxiety and you just don't know what's going on unless you test. But for someone who maybe has tested and has high cortisol, what would you recommend in that aspect? And then again, for someone with low cortisol, what can they do? So, and this is assuming with high cortisol. Now, again, I run the Dutch test. So the Dutch test is much more comprehensive than maybe just your traditional um, basic saliva test. So I'm looking at metabolized cortisol, which is uh, cortisol production, and I'm looking at free cortisol. So if, if their production is low and their free cortisol is low, then I know they have something wrong from the brain down. So now I'm trying to figure out what is happening, whether it's thyroid, whether it's, you know, medications they're taking, whether it's they've had a brain injury, whether, you know, they, it's immune system stuff, it's they've got an infection, inflammation um, to get their brain communicating down to their adrenals. Now, the good thing is there's tons of stuff people can do for the brain. Everything from sleep, which we talked about, you know, get using your blue blocker and glasses at night, getting off your phones at night, getting um, sunlight or full spectrum light exposure in the morning, really helpful for the brain. Your good fats, your oils, your fish oils, really good for the brain. Um, anything that improves circulation, blood flow, blood is how your hormones transport. So getting acupuncture, getting chiropractic, getting massage. If you've got tight neck muscles, shoulder muscles, if your scalp is really tight, then you're going to have a tough time kind of getting that lymphatic movement, nerve movement, blood movement to have all this happen. Those women who are into yoga, do your inversion poses, you know, get, get you know, flip, turn upside down, <laughs> get some <laughs> blood flow to your head and then, and then come back again can be really, really helpful. And, and it, it sounds, um, I sound, you know, like the people are like, Carrie, that's too basic. I'm like, I know, I know it sounds crazy, but we don't do it. We don't do it in this culture. Um, we, we have really tight muscles, you know, we carry our stress in our shoulders. Um, we, you know, people don't go to, or they're scared of the chiropractor. They're scared of needles. So they won't get an acupuncture appointment, but yet, you know, or they're like, Oh, massage, that's just for relaxation. I'm like, no, it's really, honestly, all of them are therapeutic. They're so good for you. There are some good herbs. A big, a good one is called Bacopa. Bacopa is a good one for sort of brain, um, that herb I said earlier, maca from Peru, uh, Peru. Uh, the, the mushroom cordyceps is a good brain one that I use quite a bit. So as you can see, I'm not even mentioning it, like adrenal type hormones or, or yeah. hormones, herbs. I'm mentioning lots of brain stuff. There are what we call adaptogens, ashwagandha, rhodiola, eleutherococcus. Then we call them adrenal adaptogens. They're actually quite systemic. They work on the immune system. They work on the thyroid. They work on inflammation. So um, I do a lot of try to, to try to help stimulate cortisol. 
Now, if somebody has high cortisol, so if their production is high and their free cortisol is high, then now I'm doing all sorts of calming things. And I'm trying to figure out why it's high. Is it because they're stressed? Is it because they're anxious? Is it because they have some sort of infection that I need to figure out or inflammation? Are they eating foods every day? That's gluten or dairy, soy, corn, sugar, you know, that is actually caffeine. You know, these, these caffeine addicts who drink coffee and energy drinks all day. Um, and then they can't figure out why their cortisol is high. I'm like, hello. <laughs> I can tell you why. Um, but with blood sugar dysfunction, if you skip meals quite a bit or you, um, you know, you, whatever you do choose to eat, maybe it's not that healthy. It's a donut. It's a bagel. It's, you know, just a juice on the run, um, a coffee on the run, but the, your coffee has sugar in it and syrup and covered in whipped cream. Your cortisol, people don't realize this, cortisol um, is a huge um, hormone to help you make blood sugar, to help you make glucose. And so when, you're, when your blood sugar is all over the place, then you're, gonna, you're absolutely 100% going to have cortisol issues no matter what. So if you don't fix your, if you don't fix your blood sugar, if you don't fix the way you eat, then you're, you're never going to fix your cortisol because it's its job. Its job is to try to help you stay balanced. And so I'm doing, so I'm working to try to figure out why is this so high with this person and then using treatments to b- counterbalance that. Yeah. And again, cortisol is another hormone that's demonized, but we need it. We yeah. Need it to get us out of bed in the morning and protect our immune system, those types of things. So um, yeah, just showing the, the positives of cortisol as well. And I love the the brain aspect that you was mentioning, uh, that's not really commonly spoke about either, is it? No one really nope. focuses on the the first line of the problem, like it starts <laughs> in the brain. So why shouldn't we address brain health as part of the protocol as well? So yeah, I love those recommendations that you made. Yeah, and thanks. Yeah, the Dutch test is probably the most common test that I use with my clients, um, probably alongside like stool testing like the GI map I find the two together can provide so much information especially for those who are struggling with digestive issues where would you start first would you recommend the stool test first or would you always recommend a Dutch test or both together um and actually believe it or not it depends on the person so um it, it depends on their their symptoms um it depends on their finances um and I love both I I do both quite regularly and so Sometimes, you know, if, if I know they have a big GI, a lot of GI issues, um, if I suspect infection or anything like that, I will just start with the gut because if I can get that healed up, then I can probably, just by addressing the gut and the infection and inflammation in there, um, I can probably affect 50 to 75% of their hormonal cortisol issues because I'm directly in addressing the cause. I'm going after the inflammation, the infection. Um, the absorption, digestion, that kind of stuff. And but if it's sort of a combination, if if they're really struggling hormonally or with cortisol symptoms, and they're having a lot of GI issues, and and you know they they can afford both, and they want to work on both at the same time, um, then I will absolutely run both. If they don't have any GI issues, if they're like, I have no issues there, I have regular bowel movements, you know, I don't have gas and bloating, I don't feel like that's an issue, then I won't run it, you know, initially, initially I will just stick more. If they're like, she has, if she says I have hot flashes and night sweats, or I can't get pregnant, I've been trying to get pregnant, or um, I've really severe PMS, um, I have PCOS, then I may just start with the Dutch test and some other markers, thyroid, insulin, things like that. um, And then go from there. Yeah. So there's probably a lot of people listening to this, watching this, thinking, oh my God, I need to investigate all of these (laughs) hormones. And the good thing is that the Dutch test can go through all of the different hormones that we've spoken about, show you whether your levels are high or low, what pathways you're going through. So can you just give us a bit more information about the Dutch test? Um, how can people order it? How, how is it completed? And what, what other information can it provide, like the organic acids? Um, how can they be helpful? Yeah. So first of all, I'll tell people Dutch is an acronym. We don't test for Dutch heritage. So it's dried <laughs> urine test for comprehensive hormones. And um, it's... it's um, usually historically it's a urine test and so it's pieces of filter paper that women and men men can run the test as well um urinate on these pieces of paper four sometimes five times through the day they let the four or five pieces of paper dry and they're just small and then um once they're they mail them back to the lab and then 
we get the results. And so all the hormones that we talked about today, including things like estrogen detoxification, that 5-alpha pathway with testosterone, the cortisol and cortisone, melatonin, all of that is included in the Dutch test. And then like you said, we've added a few extra organic acids on. So we have um, a few nutrition markers. So we have a B12 marker, a B2, B6 markers, um, a glutathione marker, glutathione being the most uh, abundant antioxidant in your body. Um, we have a dopamine metabolite. We have a noradrenaline, adrenaline metabolite. And we have a, a DNA damage marker called 8-OHDG. So we just got some extra things to help when it comes to hormones and cortisol. Like, like what else may be an issue that can just sort of point you in that direction. Um, and then where can people order the test from? Well, from you. They can order it from you. <laughs> they can make an appointment with you. <laughs> but we do have a website. People can just, you know, check out if you want to learn more, dutchtest.com. Perfect. Um, yeah. And how does the Dutch test differ from blood testing? So if someone says, my doctor said my estrogen's within range, mm-hmm. my cortisol, it was in range. How does the Dutch test differ from blood testing? Definitely much more comprehensive. Um, With blood testing, you only get that single marker and you don't get any of the pathways. And by pathways, I mean, you'll get your estrogen marker, but you won't get the detoxification. So your estrogen might be good, but then you, in blood, and you run a Dutch test and you see, oh, wow, I am going down too much of that uh, potentially carcinogenic pathway and you can do something about it. Or maybe you'll find that your phase two detoxification is not that great. You know, maybe your testosterone and blood is normal, but you have spots and you have hair growth and you're angry. And when we run the Dutch test, we see, yeah, it's normal, but the pathway it goes down is, is that five alpha pathway. So no matter what, you're going to be angry and irritated and have acne and, you know, and, and dark coarse hair in places you don't want. And then we can do something about it. Same for cortisol. When you get your blood drawn for cortisol, it's a single one point and it's a combination of what's free and what's bound up. So you don't actually know if you, like if the, if the level is 10 in your blood work, you don't know if that's nine bound up and one free. And remember it's the free that does the action, or maybe it's nine free and one bound up. Those are very different results, but blood cannot determine the difference. They just say 10. <laughs> so it's up to you to figure out like what's going on. But with Dutch, it's really great because we do it throughout the day. So we get your cortisol pattern in the day called your circadian rhythm. Helps a lot for people who say, I'm really tired in the morning or I'm anxious in the morning or I can't sleep at night. Um, you know, cause then we can see the up down pattern and we look at cortisone, like I mentioned earlier. So are you low in cortisol because you deactivated all to cortisone? And we also look at melatonin, which blood tests don't do. So Maybe you're not sleeping because you don't make enough melatonin, not because your cortisol is high. Or maybe it's both. Maybe your cortisol is high at night and you don't make enough melatonin. And so we get this really big comprehensive like, oh, let's pinpoint what's going on versus having to um, you know, draw a, a blood test that only tells us a, a little bit of information and then you're told you're fine, but you don't feel fine. Exactly. And it's less invasive. You get more Mm -hmm. answers, more um, precise with certain hormones as well. So yeah, I just think it's an overall great test to really find some answers and speed up the the healing process in a lot of cases. Definitely. I would agree. Yeah. (laughs) I want to finish up with just three quick questions, if that's okay. Um, The first one is, what's your favorite herb, nutrient or supplement that you couldn't live without? Um, well, for me personally, I would have to say, like I said earlier, my B6. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be for me. Yeah. For me yeah. personal. And would be a close second would be my fish oil. I take, um, I take about four grams, four to six grams of fish oil every day. And right. I, and again, I notice a huge, huge difference when I do it. I know not everyone yeah. um, needs that much, but um, based on my genetics, I do. And I love it. Great. What's something that you're into lately? So this could be health related, completely random. Just something that you want to show. <laughs> well, I mean, I know I showed this book earlier, uh, but yeah, um, book. this so the book Estrogen Matters. Um, the reason I'm so into it is again, much like Dr. Gersh, is um, I feel like estrogen's really been vilified, and and I'll be um, my birthday is June 19th. I'll be 42, and so I don't I don't think thankfully, knock on wood, I don't feel men- perimenopausal yet, but I know you know it's coming. And so I have been doing a lot of research into the, um, all the original studies in 2002 that said 
right? HRT is bad, the, the, the WHI um, study. And, and subsequently since then, all the changes, all the backtracking, all the apologies, all the oopsies of like, well, maybe that study wasn't really that good. And actually, subsequently since then, a lot of the authors have backtracked on what they've said. Um, and that study's really been ripped apart. And so, but, but that's not taught, right? It didn't make national headlines. All the apologizing and backtracking didn't make headlines. What made headlines in 2002 is HRT will cause cancer, so you should stop it. And so because I'm turning 42, my pet project is to figure out, you know, kind of the truth about estrogen and cancer. Even though I'm not into oncology, it's really for me personally, just to see what I think about it. Um, is I, cause I don't want dementia. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to break <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I don't, you know, and I want to, again, like there's anti-aging and then there's just aging with a good memory, you know, like there's a different, like I want, I'm, I want to age gracefully and I want to have my memory intact and I want to be able to keep going hiking and I want to, you know, be able to still travel uh, 40 years from now and, and, and be healthy at it. And so I'm, that's what my current passion is to figure out the truth about estrogen, ER positive breast cancers, things like that. I think a lot of media has um, gotten in the way of the science. Yeah, definitely. I think it's something that I want to research in as well. It's just such yeah. a huge topic. I probably need yeah. to block out three months, <laughs> <laughs> dive into that research. But yeah. yeah, and you look absolutely amazing. You do not look 42. Whatever <laughs> you're doing is the fish oil, the V6. It's obviously working for you. <laughs> I'm going to so, keep it up. Yeah. Last question is where can people find more about you online? Oh, Instagram is my favorite place ever. Instagram. So dr.carryjones. Um, and everything I have on there is educational. I'm not trying to sell anything. Obviously I work for the Dutch test, but I don't have any programs or, you know, things that I'm telling people to sign up for newsletters, stuff like that. It's just me educating about hormones that's what I love to do. And, um, definitely follow me and, and go back through all my posts and learn a lot. Yeah. There's so much on there. People could really, <laughs> yeah, spend a weekend just going through all your posts and they'll learn probably more than most conventional doctors, which is a little controversial, but <laughs> it's, it's really fun. I actually, I will have, and I've had a number of conventional doctors write me to say, I didn't learn this in school. I had no idea. Like no. this is embarrassing. I, di I didn't realize this. And I have a number of medical students in medical school, various medical school, whether conventional medical school or um, a DO, so doctor of osteopathy or ND, naturopathic medical school will write me and say, um, this is amazing. I, cause I'm learning more about endocrinology, which is what I focus in. Um, yeah from you on Instagram, on social yeah. media, than I'm getting in school. Mm. Yeah, Which, you know, in this day up. and age, like, let's, let's do it. Like, thank goodness for social media. Exactly. There's some downsides to social media, yeah, like, but your account great. is the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> the, the quizzes that you do, um, so informative. You just learn something and have fun at the same time. It's not like you're in a lecture or anything like that. You really make it simple, easy to understand, and just, yeah. The information that you provide is gold so yeah, yeah I want to thank you so much for your time today sharing all of this information and yeah i hope you have a wonderful rest of your day carrie oh thank you so much i really appreciate it this has been great thank you for listening to another episode of the hormones in harmony podcast if you like this episode please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances as a massive thank you gift i'll send you a free guide six steps to hormonal harmony all you need to do is screenshot your rating and review then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and i'll send you the link to download this free guide if you haven't already check out my website vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration you can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next steps to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally See you back here next week for another episode.